Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work through the Word Diet together. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Today we're in the book of Joshua, the book that awakened me to the power and applicability of the Old Testament, in particular the fruit and the fight of Canaan, and it led to my book on Joshua, Inheriting Our Promised Land. And so these episodes are, in essence, an extended audio version of that book. Right now we're in Joshua 10. In the previous segment we did Joshua 9, the bulk of which is usually called the Gibeonite Deception. But at the beginning of chapter 9 we read about the coalition of Western kings who had come together to fight Israel. The duration of the chapter covered the Gibeonites and their successful attempt to enter into relationship with Israel and with God. Now we return to the Western kings and how they turn their aggression away from Israel toward Gibeon. The coalition had formed in response to Israel's victories at Jericho and Ai, and now was responding to the results of the negotiation table between Israel and Gibeon. Unfortunately, instead of following Gibeon's footsteps of surrender and repentance, their rebellion continued. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoam, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. Now, why did they attack Gibeon instead of Israel? Maybe they wanted to use Gibeon as a buffer. They certainly wanted to punish Gibeon and likely wanted to prevent other defections. Certainly, Gibeon was nearby and may have been a strategic location. In addition, they might have guessed that Israel would be relatively apathetic about their new friends. But the bottom line is probably a zeal to make the Gibeonites pay for abandoning the alliance. Likewise, Satan goes to war with those who make peace with God. As non-believers, we are under God's judgment. After salvation, we often come under attack from the world and the devil. The question for Israel, of course, is can they and God defeat a coalition of kings like they'll face in chapter 10? The only other detail of note is the name Adonai Zedek, which means the Lord is righteousness, who's the king of Jerusalem. And this is in contrast to Melchizedek, whose name means the king is righteousness. We read about him in Genesis 14 and Hebrews 7. McConville notes that the irony points up well the nature of the conflict 
who has the right to claim the mantle of righteousness, and who truly rules in the land. Who is the true king? Who is the true Lord? And of course, that's easy in God's economy. Melchizedek honored Abraham, but Adonai Zedek fights Israel and opposes God. All right, let's move on to verses 6 through 9. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Not surprisingly, the Gibeonites call out to their new friend Joshua. It's interesting that their request has the same wording as Adonai Zedek's call to his alliance in verse 4. In essence, an appeal or plea, come up and help. It's also interesting that Joshua's name means the Lord delivers or saves and Gibeon, in a sense, is merely asking him to live up to his name. As Francis Schaeffer said, they must have held their breath as they waited to see if the Israelites would honor the oath. But fittingly, Joshua's name, meaning the Lord saves, the Greek version of which is Jesus, and Joshua would be a type of Jesus for them. They had more than they could handle on their own and needed to be delivered from certain death and judgment. His grace would be sufficient for them as they called out in their time of distress. Joshua immediately came to Gibeon's defense. With no hesitation, including an all-night march, Joshua gave his best. He was resolved to maintain his oath, stepping out in simple obedience. Despite their earlier deceit, he had not attacked them earlier, a picture of mercy. Now he actually comes to their defense, a picture of grace. And the grace is magnified in that the Gibeonites had little to offer him in return. It is again interesting that Joshua does not pray here. Of course, there was no need for prayer or direction because he already knew what he should do. That said, Joshua was ready to listen if God wanted to talk with him further. And God does communicate with Joshua, telling him not to be afraid because Israel would have the victory. Note the verb tenses. This was a done deal. Moreover, God telling Joshua this was unsolicited, and God responds immediately rather than putting Joshua on probation after the last chapter, both of these as pictures of grace. Note also that God speaks to Joshua after Joshua's purposeful steps of obedience. He's bolstered in his faith after he leaves Gilgal. Perhaps the encouragement is meant to quicken Joshua's steps. Perhaps that's the reason they marched all night long. Finally, it's interesting that Joshua's response in verses 7 through 9 mirrors the kings. He also marches up with his entire army. It's a picture of unity and the opposite. The alliance was unified against him, but Joshua and Israel with their God are unified against them as well. Lissa Beale says, But Joshua brings what the five kings do not have, the Lord's threefold assurance. Don't fear. They're in your hand. Your enemy will not stand. And that's what will happen as the battle commences. All right, let's read from verses 9 through 15. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them all the way to Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, 
the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ahijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Not only do they march all night to reach Gibeon quickly, but they attack immediately, ambushing Gibeon's attackers. Thus the battle plan and eventual victory begin with their participation, but God provides as well in their weakness. That all-night 25-mile march up from Gilgal through difficult terrain. God was strong. 2 Corinthians 12.9 comes to mind here. As he empowered them to fight well despite their exhaustion. But the next verses turn to God's explicit provision. The Lord threw the attackers into confusion before Israel. And the Lord threw a few hailstones as well. Perhaps one should think of the hailstones as God's bullets. And I'd imagine that he had pretty good aim. In fact, more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. In verses 14 and later in 42, God fights for them. This is prophesied in Deuteronomy three different times, and it's the same as at the Red Sea in Exodus 14. In both cases, God uses nature and brings confusion to those who flee with hardened hearts. God willing, the Israelites would have won the battle naturally, but God intervenes for a quicker and more complete victory. In Matthew Henry's words, Israel did what they could, but God did all. As such, this represents another kind of victory. In between the utterly supernatural victory at Jericho and the perfectly standard military strategy of Ai, we now have some middle ground, a combination of both, a balance, so to speak, of sorts in God's provision and Israel's participation. Despite the Israelites' best efforts and quite a bit of supernatural assistance, it became evident to Joshua that he would be unable to vanquish the western kings in one day. As a practical matter, the overnight delay would lessen the scope of their victory. As a type of the Christian life, it provides a picture of the natural barriers we face in winning our battles. But Joshua was not satisfied with a limited victory. He praised to God for a longer day and more time to battle his enemy, a picture of his passion for doing God's will and his work, and this after the all-night march and a day of heavy fighting. What else could he have requested? He could have asked for more hail. That would not have been particularly creative, and although it would have been quick, it would have required nothing on Joshua's part. Instead, Joshua reveals his passion to serve God. It should be likewise for us. As Jesus said in John 9, 4, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Are we as diligent and passionate as Joshua? Now, what else is there to say about this passage? Fortunately, because it's Hebrew literature, we have some other options for us available as we read it. First of all, note that the passage may have elements that are retrospective and may not be strictly chronological. It's also possible to read it in a more poetic, hyperbolic, or even apocalyptic-to-be sense of things. The moon stands still, the moon turned to blood. It's a language and a literary style that's used around the time of Jesus, but this may be an early reference to that sort of literature. 
A few other things are noteworthy here. First, the text twice says that the sun stood still in verses 13 and 14. Some have been troubled by the supposed scientific implications of the passage. After all, the sun always stands still. But even today, we talk about sunrises and sunsets as if the sun moved. Such terms are simply a matter of perspective. In any case, this verse should be really comforting for the scientific legalists among us. The sun does, in fact, stand still. Second, remember that the locals considered the sun and moon to be deities. So by making them seem to stand still, the true God effectively demonstrated his sovereignty and power over the third-rate gods of the pagan Canaanites. And for the doubting Israelites, this would bolster their faith in God's power and sovereignty. Third, Joshua makes his request in front of the people, risking embarrassment, but also ultimately magnifying his leadership, underlying the depth of his faith in God and bringing greater glory to God. Fourth, we can find application of this to Ephesians 4.26. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Figuratively speaking, we should ask for a delay in a sunset so that we can deal properly with anger and contention. Fifth, notice how remarkable the language of verse 14 is that God listens. The Hebrew word here implies that God obeys, listen and obey, and listens to the voice of Joshua. This is only used for Moses in Numbers 21.3 and Elijah in 1 Kings 17.22. So this is indeed a special moment. Finally, note that Joshua conquered his enemies with an extra day of sun, while Christ conquered the grave while turning the sun to dark. All right, let me close this segment with a discussion on miracles. This is the last major miracle in Joshua, and it brings questions. You may have had them from earlier in the book, but let's deal with this question now. First of all, recognize that there's a seeming spectrum of miracles, from super-duper miraculous, if you will, to things that seem not so crazy for us to try to define and understand. To part the Jordan is one thing. The walls of Jericho by earthquakes, similar, but making the sun stand still, that's a different order of magnitude. And so we want to recognize that different level of miracle-ness, if you will. Let's also take a literary angle from the text itself. Remember Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15, and Joshua's encounter of the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. And it was a hinge between the miracles of chapters 3 and 4 and 6. And so maybe we're supposed to divine something from its placement in the text right there, that we have God's mysteries and God's will and the dance between those, and maybe the part that miracles would play in the mystery of God and the will of God, at least in certain points in history. Now, all that said, we have many options for beliefs. I've covered this with the 10 plagues, and there are relatively natural or supernatural ways to interpret those events. In any case, God is certainly in charge of nature, whether he uses a lot of natural or a little bit of natural to pull those things off. As we noted before, there's also the point that biblical narratives are a matter of observation, not science. We saw this with sunrise and sunset. From our perspective, even contemporaries will say sunrise, sunset. It's not a scientific claim. It doesn't mean that we're rubes with respect to science when we say such things. It's just that there's a difference between observation in everyday life and a scientific claim. 
Notice also from a biblical perspective that miracles were unusual on a daily basis, even in the spurt of miracles that we see biblically with Moses and Joshua and later with Elijah and Elisha. Despite their relative prevalence in recorded scripture, they still were relatively rare things and what we would constitute as miraculous. I think that brings a related question of historical contingency And it's interesting to consider how God might use miracles differently across time and across culture. But ultimately, there are no problems here or elsewhere for a creator God and a resurrected Jesus. Aside from logical contradictions like something existing and not existing at the same time or square circles, God can do what he wants. If he created the universe, if Jesus resurrected, what's the big deal? None of this stuff is crazy compared to that. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered chapter 10, verses 1 through 15 of Joshua, as Joshua comes to the defense of the Gibeonites, who they had formed an alliance with in chapter 9. Five western kings come up against Joshua, and it doesn't end well for them. As Joshua asks for a miracle, God throws hailstones, conventional military strategy, and overall combination of God's provision and their participation. That takes us to Joshua 10, verses 16 through 28. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop, pursue your enemies, attack them from the rear, and don't let them reach their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely, but a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the neck of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you're going to fight. Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles, and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the poles and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. That day, Joshua took Makeda He put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors. He did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. So in chapter 10, verses 16 through 19, we see a picture of dealing with first things first. Instead of being distracted by the kings in the cave, Joshua keeps his priorities straight, trapping the kings, chasing down the soldiers, and returning later to kill the kings. It's interesting that the hailstones in verse 11 were part of the battle. The word there is literally large rocks, and it's the same as the word used in verses 18 and 27, first to trap the kings and then to bury them. Lissa Beale writes that God and man use the same weapons, each appropriate to their spheres of heaven and earth. 
and as McConville notes, the hiding place became their prison and soon their tomb, all of this underlining their impotence versus God and Joshua. In verse 19, we're told that God had given the soldiers into Israel's hands, and Joshua does not squander that gift. The kings here represent the relatively exciting things we had the opportunity to do, and the soldiers represent our more mundane tasks. Our tendency is often to focus on the exciting things while inappropriately delaying the other things. In managing our time optimally, we need to prioritize effectively and make sure to wrap up any loose ends. The story is told of a chemistry teacher who fills a beaker with rocks and asks his class if the beaker is full. They reply yes, but then he pours some gravel into the beaker and asks again if it's full. They reply yes again, but then he pours some sand into the beaker and asks again if it's full. They reply yes one more time before he pours water into the beaker to truly fill the container. The lesson, you can put a lot more in your beaker if you put things into it in the right order. If he put the items into the beaker in reverse order, he would not have been able to fit as much in. Likewise, it is important for us to deal with first things first and second things second. Then we see another example of devotion, just like the king of Jericho, before the Israelites turn to the second things in verses 22 through 28. The kings are brought out of the cave and fall or are thrown to the ground. In any case, Joshua tells his army commanders to step on the king's necks a clear picture of humiliation, domination, and submission. Joshua meant this to be an encouragement to his leaders, a sign of their God-granted victory. It's admirable that Joshua does this, since the honor was usually reserved for the highest general. He was looking to empower his subordinates rather than merely glorifying himself. This provides a spiritual picture as well. Psalm 91 verses 9 and 13 promises that if we make the Most High our dwelling, we will tread upon the lion and the cobra, we will trample the great lion and the serpent. Genesis 3.15 prophesied that the serpent's head would be crushed. Romans 16.20 says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And Colossians 2.15 tells us that Christ did this to the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. A verse that is prophesying Jesus in his first and especially his second coming. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Joshua's captains should have been inspired both by the battle and by Joshua's offer, but they were apparently still afraid and a long way from depending fully on God. For us, this is akin to regarding our enemies, Satan, the world, and the flesh, too heavily. In previous chapters, the Israelites had treated sin and their enemies too lightly. But note that Joshua is not self-confident, but God-confident. Verse 25 says, this is what the Lord will do. So Joshua obeys the call to execute God's enemies. The kings were killed and then hung for display. It's just like what we saw in chapter 8, verse 29, that a dead body is not supposed to be kept out overnight. Joshua didn't try to reform the kings or the Canaanite people. He followed the command to destroy them. Likewise, we are not to try to reform the flesh or to compromise with sin. In Colossians 3, 5 through 10, Paul exhorts his readers to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, 
You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Paul similarly is saying there is no compromise. Likewise, in the treatment of gangrene and cancer, going halfway is not sufficient. The corrupted cells and limbs need to be completely excised. The disease is committed to spreading and must be fully destroyed. Finally, note that the king's seeming refuge became first their prison and then their burial ground. They escaped Israel's sword and God's hail for a more terrible and holy execution. They would not escape judgment, but instead received it in God's timing. And the rock pile in front of the cave became yet another memorial for the Israelites of God's grace toward them and his judgment for Canaan's sin, of his sovereignty and their faithfulness, of his provision and their participation. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous segments, we covered chapter 10, verses 1 through 28. The more exciting part of the narrative in the defeat of the alliance of kings that come up against the Gibeonites, whom the Israelites had just formed the interesting alliance with in chapter 9 called the Gibeonite Deception. Starting in verse 29, the text moves on to a very brief narrative of five cities that are sacked in the southern part of Canaan. Beale describes the narrative here as the rapid pace heightening the sense of Israel's invincibility. It just rolls. It's not very interesting to read, so I'm going to leave that to you, but I do want to make a few comments as we go along here. Again, we see God's provision explicitly in Israel's victory over the first two cities. The Lord gave Libna and its king into Israel's hand, verse 30, and the Lord handed Lachish over to Israel in verse 32. In the other three victories, God's provision is perhaps a smaller part of the combination, so to speak. But in any case, he was still essential to Israel's success. The passage ends by reiterating that the Lord fought for Israel in verse 42. So too with us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Quoting Romans 8.31. Of course, Israel participates as well. They utterly destroy each of the cities and kill all of the natives. Few details are given, but the style of the passage, a brief itinerary from city to city, implies the ease of their success. They crush these other cities quickly in only one campaign, we're told in verse 42. Again, a picture of Israel's zeal for accomplishing God's will. In some, we're told that they subdued the southern and western areas of Canaan, including Kadesh Barnea in verse 41. Remember that Kadesh Barnea had been the site of the infamous 10 versus 2 spies incident, which kept the former generation from entering Canaan. Numbers 34 verses 3 and 4 had included the city as one of the southern boundaries within Canaan. The most poignant thought here is that the former generation had barely tasted the promised land before their rebellion in the wilderness on the verge of God's blessings and promises in a land of fruit and fight, they simply did not have the faith to continue. Finally, we'll see this again in chapter 12, and I used it to talk about the difficulties of understanding Joshua after chapter 6. Been a whole episode on that. But one of the points I made there reiterates here, which is the judgment is especially on the kings and the cities. This is the divine king, the Lord, going up against earthly kings. And it's a picture of God as king rather than deistic or despotic earthly kings. 
God's power and care as the greater sovereign is in evidence here. Part of what's happening is a competition between earthly rule and divine rule, earthly kings and the one true king. All right, let's move on to chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akspah, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah south of Kenareth, in the western foothills, and in Naphoth-dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mitzpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mishpareth, Maim, and to the valley of Mitzpah to the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all of these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed, and he burned Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So the northern kings brought together the greatest amount of firepower that Israel would face. This, the largest force from the largest geographic area, was described as a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore with horses and chariots in verse 4. Again, the alliance would end up allowing Israel to finish its conquest more quickly, and again it further illustrates the justice of God's holy war, the Yahweh war, against the Canaanites. It's noteworthy that the northern campaign is similar in structure to the campaign we just read at the end of chapter 10 against the south. We also see a surprise attack in verse 7, as we saw in chapter 10, verse 9. And as with the northern kings, little time is spent in the narrative. It's a picture of quick and total victory. As McConville puts it, Yahweh could be trusted. Obedience leads to the promised outcome. No enemy, however great, could withstand the purpose of Yahweh. Note also that for Israel, their toughest numerical battle comes after they have had some experience walking in faith and fighting in battle. Likewise, Abraham is not called to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 12 at the beginning of his relationship with God, but in Genesis 22 in the last major story recorded about him. And God recognizes the challenge of this trial, encouraging them in the face of overwhelming force with the speed of his deliverance. By this time tomorrow, God says in verse 6, it's a matter of when, not if. The enemy is already defeated. Likewise, as our trials get bigger, God continues to encourage us as much as we need. As 1 Corinthians 10.13 promises us, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. God then delivers on his promise. The Lord gave them into the hand of Israel in verse 8. 
even an army of impressive size. Note that reference to sand sounds very much like the promises to Abraham in Genesis. And tremendous might, the horses and chariots. But God says in verse 6, don't fear, and then provides specifics to encourage them. Joshua and Israel play an active role here as well. Again, Israel fights hard and uses standard military strategy, as with AI, in ambushing the enemy. Finally, notice that God commands them to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots in verse 6. Instead of giving them a new paint job, God wanted them disabled as instruments of war or destroyed. Militarily, horses and chariots would have been a distraction since most of the heavy warfare had now been completed. In any case, they were to avoid dependence on those things instead of God in battle. In fact, horses and chariots were not used in battle until the time of Solomon by Israel. But God eventually did turn to worship horses and chariots as the Canaanites did. We read about this in 2 Kings 23.11. That takes us to a long passage that we're not going to read. It starts in the middle of chapter 11, arranges through the end of chapter 12. As the narrative closes on the end of the battles in Joshua, we can glean a number of other observations. First, we're told about Joshua's complete obedience in chapter 11, verse 15, not only in terms of commission, but also omission. As it is said of Daniel, there was neither corruption nor negligence in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. Second, the text underlines that the Canaanites continued to rebel, refused to make peace, and hardened their hearts against God and Israel, chapter 11, verses 18 through 20. Much like Pharaoh, after the Canaanites had hardened their own hearts, God hardened them further. Verse 19 makes clear that none made peace with Israel, and by implication, we know that that is a ready option, not only from the text here, but with the story of the Gibeonites back in chapter 9 and 10. Verse 20, they hardened their hearts, very much like Pharaoh, strengthening their resolve to do what they already wanted to do. In the face of God's evident power, God needed to strengthen their hearts in order to let them do what was really in their hearts in the first place to do. This should be a sober warning to both non-Christians who refuse to submit to God and Christians who continue in sin. As a practical matter, their zeal in attacking Israel and snubbing God simply made victory easier and quicker. In verses 21 and 22, we're told about the Anakites. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 9 verses 1 and 2 says, Here, Israel, you're now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites, you know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? And the answer here in Joshua 11 is nobody. Rhetorically, this is saying, hey, not even the Anakites can stand up against you and God. Continuing that idea, we're told that Joshua took the entire land, a verse later in chapter 11, verse 23. That turns out to be a bit of hyperbole. In fact, the key centers have been taken. That's part of the list of defeated kings in chapter 12, but there were still stubborn pockets of resistance they needed to mop up, and we'll talk more about that later. The mention in inheritance in chapter 11, verse 23, the first of 50 times in the book of Joshua, is an introduction of the shift to the main topic in chapters 13 through 21, the allotment of the land, their inheritance in the promised land. This is also the last mention of all Israel battling. After this, it'll be individuals and tribes that pick up the bulk of the action. Likewise, in chapter 12, we have the plurality of Canaan versus the unity of Israel. 
verses 6 and 7, there's a mention of the Transjordan as Israel but separate. That's a theme we'll have to explain in the next section as well. Obviously, chapter 12 is mostly about kings and cities, a theme I talked about in chapter 10 at the end. That We have the divine king versus earthly kings. Some interesting verbs used here in verses 2 and 4 of chapter 12, dwelt and reigned. And those are terms used of God. So there's a comparison meant here between the true God and these self-proclaimed gods who were rulers of their cities, very much like what we saw in Exodus. Other themes are also parallel with Exodus. We had women going up against the king in the opening. We see that here. We have a named prostitute versus an anonymous king in Joshua where we had unnamed midwives going up against the anonymous king in Exodus. And as before, we see God going up against nature and gods, whether river, hail, sun, and moon, same thing we saw in the book of Exodus. We also see Joshua going up against earthly kings in a comparison here. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, maybe the most famous passage in Joshua, has his righteousness and obedience based on following God and following his word. This was commanded of Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, and it is followed by Joshua. Otherwise, it's a standard only approached by David in 1 Kings 15, 5, and actually met by Josiah in 2 Kings 22, verse 2. Psalm 1 certainly comes to mind here. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way the sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And we certainly have seen that in the book of Joshua. We also know that Joshua had good and effective leadership, not just military, but in terms of national unity and spiritually speaking. And at the end, he'll quietly retire. We'll get to that at the end of the book, rather than striving to the very end, giving power to his sons and so on. Lissa Beale warns that Joshua 12 reads like an enconium to Israel's power. There's no explicit reference that links Israel's victories to God's power, and that's a sobering omission. And so we celebrate with Israel with its victory, but there's an implicit warning here. Will they continue to depend on and obey God? Of course, looking forward, there's a picture of total conquest here, but a careful reading of the geographical references that are missing is that it does not include the coastal areas and Philistine land, and so there's much more to say about this later. Chapter 11 concludes with a reference to rest, and that's a wonderful picture here, but it is hyperbolic, something we'll have to talk about later. For us, something more is intended by way of analogy. The promised land was a land of destruction and plunder, of blood and treasure, of fruit and fight, filled with things to destroy and to enjoy. Ultimately, the focus was to be on the fruit, but there was a time to fight as well. Likewise, for us, we are called to abundant life, spiritually, if not materially. There will be times of battle, testing, and trial, but it is God's will that we would have joy, peace, and rest. Let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Purity and Friend Me there, questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we got through Joshua 12, and that leads to a discussion of the road to victory in our promised land, summing up the lessons we've learned and what they mean for us in terms of God's provision and our participation. In this first section of the book, we've seen Israel prepare for battle in their promised land, and we drew parallels to explore our need to prepare before we can accept our victories in our promised land. That was chapters 1 through 5. Throughout this section of the book, chapter 6 through 12, we've seen Israel in different types of battle within their promised land, as well as their continuing need to worship and depend on God and to deal effectively with sin in their camp. So too, we are called to conquer the promised land of our souls, to fight off the enemies and sins that try to control our land in dependence on him, with trust in his presence and his promises, and in obedience to his commands. Israel faced a variety of external and internal enemies. Today, believers have three enemies, the world, the flesh, or our sin nature, and the devil and his demonic realm. About the world, 1 John 2, 15 and 16 instructs us, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Thus the world at least implicitly opposes God, and the things of the temporal worldly system are in opposition to the eternal things of God. About the flesh, our sin nature, Galatians 5, 16 and 17 tells us to live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Thus the Spirit wars against the sinful nature. And of course, Satan wages war on Christ directly as one can observe by reading about his ministry. Satan also attacks God's children, those who believe in Christ. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. In sum, the evil trinity of the world, the devil, and the flesh engage in battle against God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and us. They have varying strengths over time by individual and within cultures, but we all deal with all three. In studying Israel's military victories, we observed that in each case, God graciously provided some level of assistance and purposefully required some level of Israel's activity. So too with us. God graciously provides from our justification through our sanctification to our glorification, but we must participate as well in justification by merely accepting the gift of his grace and within sanctification by following in obedience and faith. Thus, God's provision and our participation are both necessary. Neither is sufficient by itself. This is not a matter of balance, not a 50-50 proposition, but ideally 100% God and 100% us. Let's talk in detail about each. Let's start with God's provision for us. Looking back to God's provision for Israel in its battle for the promised land, Psalm 44, 1-3 reminds us that we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what you did in their days and days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. Despite Israel's participation, the focus of this passage is on God's essential provision. In a sense, the same is true for us as well. Independent of our efforts, all would be for naught without God's grace working in our lives. What are the elements of God's provision for us? First, the blood of Christ, which pays for all of our sins, past, present, and future. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, Ephesians 1, 7. It is the means of our justification and the ultimate manifestation of God's amazing grace extended to us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. As a result, we can enter into intimate relationship with him. Now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2.13. Perhaps because sin is connected to death, God established the need for blood to atone for sin. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This theme runs throughout the Bible. In the beginning, the first recorded death is God refusing to accept Adam and Eve's effort to cover their nakedness with fig leaves and instead shedding the blood of an animal to cover their sin and shame in Genesis 3, 7, and 21. In their escape from the angel of death and their bondage in Egypt, the Israelites shed the blood of the Passover lamb. So too, we escape God's wrath and our bondage to sin through faith in the shed blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus. In Joshua, we have seen Rahab's scarlet cord as a figure for deliverance from judgment in chapter 2. In fact, the entire Old Testament system of sacrifice was meant as an analogy to the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. Not that Israel would be saved by sacrificing animals, but that such sacrifices represented the humble and contrite heart one must have in order to approach God and accept his mercy and grace. Second, the cross of Christ deals with sanctification the process by which we become increasingly holy, walking ever closer with God. More specifically, the cross deals with the negative part of sanctification, the figurative death and removal of what causes us to sin. In Romans 6, 3-5, Paul says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Just as crucifixion came before resurrection, our figurative and spiritual death must precede eternal and abundant life. But what is this death? Paul continues, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Romans 6, 6 and 7. While our death to sin will not be complete until we reach heaven, a process of dying to sin is to begin now, and this process is a prerequisite for abundant Christian living. As Paul concludes, in the same way, count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.11. More specifically, there is to be a death to self and a dying to the world. Galatians 5.24 says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And in Galatians 6.14, Paul says, Man never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What we are in Adam must die before who we are in Christ can come alive. We are to put our sin nature and the world's impact on us to death, as opposed to falling prey to selfishness and covetousness, people-pleasing, the power of temptation, and so on. While the blood accounts for what we do, the cross deals with what we are. Or as Watchman Nee expressed it, the blood deals with our sin while the cross works on the sin factory. Third, the Spirit of God also deals with sanctification, but specifically the positive part of sanctification. While the cross and crucifixion represent the death and removal of what causes us to sin, the Spirit gives us the ability to replace the sin nature with effort, energy, and motives that can please God. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 8-11, 
Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. This refers to a process, not a point-in-time event. 2 Corinthians 3.18 notes that we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, and making progress in allowing the Spirit to influence our life, not quenching or grieving the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 and Ephesians 4.30, makes it far easier to avoid succumbing to the world and our sin nature. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Likewise, having a healthy lawn is a great way to avoid a lot of weeds. This idea of not just pulling weeds, but planting flowers, the idea of yielding to the Spirit, this is difficult experientially and intellectually. And so we have much more to say about this, but we won't have enough time to do that in this segment. In the meantime, Lord, help us to walk in the great and gracious provision that you've given us.